Welcome to the Boil Down Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. You sure are, Don. How are you doing, Don? I'm good, Sam. You're Sam. I am Sam. Sam, I am. Yes, you am. So, uh, it's been a little while since we've sat here and, and, and done this. I know. I think we've taken almost a month. But no, we didn't take well, a month. Well, we had the right? surgery special. We had the... The Boil Down. Surgery special. Special. Fabulous. Special. Surgery special. <laughs> We're the only, only people who will make such a... Uh, a holiday of surgery. Well, yeah, it was a celebration of life. Yeah, it was. Well, it is a celebration of life if you survive it. Yeah, with sanity intact, no less. Yeah, I found that it makes gratitude just come down on a much more granular level. I'm just glad to be alive. You know, that's not, traffic doesn't bother me. This is going to go away. After yeah, it's totally going to go away. Mine's gone away. <laughs> <laughs> but the minor frustrations drop by the wayside when you uh, are faced with possibly being paralyzed for the rest of your life. Well, and that is a big difference. I mean, yours was a, a more of an unknown, life-threatening type of thing, whereas mine was a planned surgery. Yeah. Uh, which is probably why people are pissing me off a hell of a lot more right now than they are pissing you off. Yeah. And... <laughs> And you're uh, dealing with the repercussions of the surgery. You have back surgery, and that's going to take a while still yeah. to recover from. I told the, uh, the I saw the surgeon last week, and he asked me, how you doing? I'm like, well, you know, the six to nine months that you told me it was going to take to recover from this seemed really doable before the surgery. Right. After the surgery, that six to nine months is a long time. So it's been three weeks? Three months. Three months. Yeah. Okay. Well, good, so... Oh, I see. You're only halfway. Yeah. On the low and that, side. And yeah, on the low side. Yeah. So, in, so you're working your program? Well, you know, I am working my program not as much as I was, mm -hmm. but I'm still doing what I need to do. It's one of those things where I've, I've kind of lost like a third of my waking hours just because I'm so wiped out. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I have not gone to meetings as much as I was going. Uh, you know, an eight o'clock meeting is like really late now. Yeah. Because I'm wiped out at five o'clock now. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm still trying to get my work squared up during the day as well as just general taking care of me stuff as well. And the thing is, it would be really convenient if there were AA meetings around here in the afternoons. Maybe you should start it. I've already had that. Don't <laughs> be making suggestions that. to me. Particularly suggestions <laughs> that involve work. <laughs> so uh, it looked like the owl was bringing somebody in here. Like an airlift type of thing from, yeah. from all the way from Hilton Head, South Carolina. Fan mail from some flounder. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody we, get that reference? I, no. It's, I thought you were just being you. No. Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh. That's from the old Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Introduce yourself. My name is Hank. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's uh, 
well, that's some beautiful weather at Hilton Head, and it's freezing here. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's, a diff it's well, different. Yeah. We like to welcome you big time. You yeah, know? but I'm really glad to be here. I love Greensboro. Yeah, well, thanks for coming, and uh, thanks for being on the Boil Down Coffee yeah, it's Club. it's pretty exciting. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and, and coming all this way me. just for us, just right? For you. It was actually just for you. Was it really? Yeah. But yeah, this was a big part of it. I was very excited about seeing how the podcast worked. I've listened to it several times. I really enjoy it. And it was pretty uh, pretty special that Sam would ask me to be here. So. Do you have connections with Greensboro? Did you get sober in Greensboro? Or? I actually hit a pretty desperate bottom here. Um, I, I was here to go to college at UNCG. Um, I think that was around 1982. And I moved to uh, from here to Florida, to New York, back to Greensboro. I mean, I've lived here three times. And, you know, I always loved it here. I, I think it's just a beautiful city. I had friends here. But I just never could stay sober and be here. I never could get over that hurdle to find a life success. And then the last time that I lived here was just, I just hit a really dark place that I couldn't, I couldn't recover from. Mm -hmm. And I ended up down at Hilton Head because I only had one person in my life who was willing to help me, and I went there. And w was that related to drugs and alcohol? It was no. absolutely. Yeah. So was that the last time? Was that? Yeah, there was. Uh, you mean the last time that I was here? The last time that you uh, was that the bottom that brought you to AA. That was the beginning of the end. After I left here and I, and I moved down to the beach, um, I tried for another year, you know, one last geographical gasp. And, you know, when I drove onto the island, I the first business I saw on the right was a restaurant. And I pulled in and I said, I need a job. And they said, can you tend bar? And I said, why, yes, I can. <laughs> and it was a sign, you know. So I, I mean, the day that I arrived, I got that job. And I tried to stay sober. And, you know, that lasted about three days. So how did it's the liquor like, supply last there? Wow. You know, it, it was. Liz, <laughs> in the candy store. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there may have been some inventory issues. <laughs> I don't really recall. <laughs> Those blackouts are convenient sometimes, right? <laughs> it can be, can't they? Uh, that's a hard place to get sober. Well, you know, the island is kind of known for partying. The drugs were expensive, and the, it really was as hard for me to be sober there as it was when I lived in the city prior. Well, well everywhere you go, there yeah. you are. Right. <laughs> yeah, the geographical or, cures don't work. They didn't work. And, you know, I, I did 42 of them. 42. 42 geographicals. I said that a bar is a hard place to get sober, although the only way I got sober was really coming to terms with the fact that there's no way that I'm going to be able to control my drinking. So actually, it was the bar that got me into AA. Well, it, it, you know, it is the alcohol that got me in, and, and being at a bar is as good a place as any to reach a bottom. My first job sober was in a restaurant. I waited tables and I tended bar. And the, you know, at that point, I wanted desperately to be sober and I was willing to do anything to stay sober. And for a long period of time that I worked at that job, the alcohol was just a commodity. It was just mm -hmm. what we sold. 
And, you know, after about a year into You mean this, you were neutral to it? I was, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, the safe and protected, like the big book says. Mm -hmm. And about a year into this, you know, I remember one night I was really tired and I was aggravated because I wanted to close and people were coming in late. And, and this fella ordered a single malt scotch. And I remember serving this and I just got a whiff of the scotch and I wanted a drink. And I knew that night that it was time for me to move on. I have to get out of this business. I don't have, I can't, I don't have the tolerance to do this anymore. The drunks were not funny anymore. And it, funny every, how that happens. Everything yeah. changed when I got sober, and I wanted to be sober more than I wanted that job. And I started pursuing other opportunities, and it was amazing that when you make a positive movement or a positive effort how the universe responds positively. And I went from that job to a job that eventually became my career. Mm -hmm. The Quakers have a saying, way will open. And I think it's true as far as recovery goes, when I'm on the right path, the doors open up. Things become available that it seemed impossible before. Uh, I've heard the description of when you're drinking, it's like you're, you're driving with no windshield wipers. It's pouring down rain, and you can see the road, but you crash a lot. <laughs> Being in recovery, seeking help from my higher power, is like turning the windshield wipers on, and I can see, and then I can make much better decisions one after the other. And more opportunities are there just because I'm clear-headed. So when I realized that that was exactly what was happening, you know, when I made this decision that I was going to change jobs and a new path started opening for me, I was conscious that that was happening. It's not something that I realized in hindsight. I knew it as it was going on. And I have since, you know, I'm in the midst of a career change again, and I it is because of the the years, I believe, in prayer and meditation, seeking conscious contact and exploring new ideas. And a lot of the things that I'm working on now are things that Sam and I have been talking about for years, things that I would like to see happen. And, you know, how the path is sort of adjusted this way and then that way. And then, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm getting ready to launch my new business next month. Mm -hmm. and, and you're almost 12 years sober now, right? Uh, January 29th, I will be 12 years sober. And so, you know, one of the things that you're talking about there is, is, is years of experience practicing the principles and the tools right. of this program. Right. And the fact that that continued work over a period of time changes us. And it changes, it, it's changed me many times throughout that period that I've been doing Oh, yeah. More and more. Well, actually, I guess it waxes and wanes, actually, is that that ability for me to to see the opportunities that are unfolding. It depends on where I am, you know, spiritually fit. It's spiritually fit. That's what I was thinking. And yeah, that's absolutely the truth, Sam. I remember and, you know, there were so many times that I can refer to as my darkest days. I mean, there were darkest days everywhere that I went because I couldn't get sober. But in every one of these dark periods of my life, I couldn't see any opportunity. There's no way out. What am I going to do? What's next? What's going to become of me? And, you know, since being sober, I, I see an opportunity every day. I am constantly seeking and seeing 
uh, avenues that could be explored, maybe not by me, but there's so many opportunities available to us if we're looking for them. Mm -hmm. And it starts from a, a little change when I decided to stop drinking. I, my uh, sponsee, uh, Philip, was telling me that it's like if, if you have two parallel lines, then through infinity, they're like one inch apart, and infinity later, they're still going to be one inch apart. But if you change one of them, just the tiniest one degree in the fullness of time, that'll be a great, it'll re, they'll really diverge. And it just takes time. And some, some little change that I make, like the little change I made of being determined that I was going to quit drinking, over a period of time became a a gigantic change in everything and in ways that I couldn't even envision. I mean, I I couldn't see a way out of my problems and my situation when I got sober. You know, there were several opportunities that I had uh, to get sober. One was when I was 22 years old. A fellow that I worked for was in recovery. He was sober that time for a year. And he would invite me to go to meetings with him. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go and be a good and supportive friend. But I had no idea that he thought that I needed to be at the meeting. And I thought they were, I thought the meetings were wonderful. They were just the most it's interesting. Fantastic for him, him, right? They were. And, and, but I, I could not uh, make the connection that I had anything to do with what you people were talking about in that meeting. And then, you know, 10 years later, I was living in New York and had another opportunity that sort of came in the you know form of a, an intervention. And I think all of the components were there at that time for me to be sober. I had the willingness, I had the opportunity, I had desperation, I had I had everything in place. And when I came back from, and the treatment was in Florida and Miami, but I came back to the city, I got a sponsor, I went to my home group, but the one thing that was missing was the steps. I never started any step work and didn't really understand the point of the step work. And Is then, that why you didn't do it? I, I think that's why. I mean, why they would I, have talked about that in treatment. I think, well, in, back in the day, you have to remember in the early 90s, a lot of these were 28-day programs fueled by the insurance industry. Mm -hmm. And what they're their focus was, was client-based therapy. And what I remember them telling me about the steps is that we're going to do one, two, and three here. And it's our intention for you to go back to, to your home and get a sponsor and then get started on, on the steps properly. But I didn't really understand that that had anything to do with me any more than the anger management class that I was taking. You know, you take this class and it's over, you do one, two, and three, and it's over. And then when it's convenient, maybe you'll talk to your sponsor one day about doing some more steps. But I didn't really understand how very important that component is. Wow. And even going to meetings when you went back. I went to a lot of meetings. A but, lot of meetings. But what how I'm hearing you is you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't do it someone else's way. Is, is that the I'm that's it. Yeah. You'd gotten out of treatment, you were going to meetings left and right, but you were not willing to live someone else's way. I don't know that that's exactly what it is, Sam, because okay. I don't have a recollection of being directed or instructed or even started on step work. That is not what we did with my sponsor. Mm -hmm. What we did 
the, my first sponsor was a woman. It was this, uh, an old lady named Betty, and I, and I loved her so dearly. In fact, I was terrified of her, but I came <laughs> to love her. But what she taught me was unconditional love. Okay. And I think there was a period of time that I was so sick and so broken that I just needed to be loved back to life. And I think that had I been able to stay sober, the steps would have been the next thing we started on. I get that. I just don't think we, I just don't think that we made it that far. You know, my experience when I came in here was the fellowship mm -hmm. carried me for about eight months mm -hmm. before I got a sponsor. And then I worked the steps with her. Right. But uh, it, it comes back to that thing of, of traditions. The traditions are what get us sober. The steps are what know. keep us sober. So the traditions are what enables us to have the fellowship that catches us whenever we, mm -hmm. when we fall into the rooms. Mm -hmm. And the fellowship is what protects us and, and loves us until we can love ourselves and all of the other things that, that happen with the fellowship being there for us. So I'm really glad that you said that, Sam, because it reminds me of something that I struggled with for a while, and I've kind of come to some conclusions about it. And one of the things that my sponsor loves is a book called Living Sober. Mm -hmm. And I've never really been a fan of the book. I've also never paid a lot of attention to it. But there's a period of time between you know, my step one and my step 12, where I'm, you know, seeking to have this spiritual awakening in step 12, there's a period of time here that I am struggling, you know, like a lot of times people relapse around step four or step five, and you start stirring all of this stuff up, but don't yet have the relief that comes as we continue to move through the steps. And what the book Living Sober talks about is the thing, the suggestions that help us stay focused and sober while we are working on having this spiritual awakening, which is going to ensure my continued sobriety. So I love the suggestions, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days, and I love them and I embrace them. I've never understood why there would ever be controversy about the suggestions in the program because they seem so relevant to me. You know, it is not found in the first 164 pages, but it is incredibly relevant when I'm struggling to get through my steps. Uh, yeah. I remember a guy when I was in my first month saying, you just got to come to a meeting every day and all the rest of it is taking place there and you'll get into mm -hmm. everything else. But you've got to, at the very beginning, show up at the meetings. Well, that was my experience. And when I, you know... But you didn't get to the steps and you drank. Oh, yeah. I I would get 30 days, and I would get 90 days. I got 95 once. I got six months twice. Both times I got six months was immediately after a rehab. So then you had the experience of failing at controlling your drinking. Yeah. And when you finally got to the place that you... I mean, I think that what happened to me was that I finally got to the place where I was convinced that there was no way drinking was going to work and I couldn't touch another drop and I need help and I've got to do something. Tell me what to do. And it was complete surrender to that. I got into the steps quick. My experience is different because my sponsor got me on one, two, and then depending on a higher power, we started right in on that because I wasn't willing to do that. 
Well, where I live now, we have a very strong recovery community. And it is... Lots of old timers there. A lot of old timers. I mean, they retire there with 20 and 30 years sober. And we have newcomers who come into the area or show up. And they get started immediately on the steps. That is what it is like now. But, you know, that final... I guess it's the last bottom because, I mean, I told you that there were three opportunities. Mm -hmm. And the third one, I had gone to treatment in in April of 05, and I couldn't tell my family that I was going to treatment again. And I I was going to miss Thanksgiving to be there, and I told them that I I had been committed for depression. And uh, because in my family, mental illness is something that we understand, and but alcoholism is not. Anything but being an alcoholic. Anything but being an alcoholic or a junkie. That Mm -hmm. is not acceptable. And I couldn't put my family through this again, so I told them that I was being committed for depression. And I sort of was, because that was something that was being addressed. But once you take the chemicals out of you know, my body, I, the depression somewhat <laughs> lifted. I was depressed. You mean you took I, the depressants away? <laughs> I was depressed because I couldn't drink enough. <laughs> so, well, alcohol is a depressant. It is. Well, it's kind of, yeah. I felt, I felt a, a, that lift at about right. three weeks yeah. sober, and all of a sudden I was like, woke up a little bit, and I was like, what's going on? And everyone, well, you know alcohol's a depressant, and it takes about three weeks to get it out of your system. Completely. So I got I got sober. I stayed sober for about six months. I relapsed in October of '05, and the next four months, you know, one of the things they talk about is how the disease is in the parking lot doing push-ups while I'm sitting in the meeting, and I never really quite understood that. But I, you know, when I had this relapse, I had been sitting in a meeting, and there was a fellow there who had a bottle of vodka in his pocket with his shirt tail over it. But I noticed it because he kept getting up and coming in and out of the room. And when he sat down, I saw the bottle of vodka in his back pocket. And I was, he was sitting right beside my sponsor and I was furious. And how dare you violate the sanctity of our AA meeting. Here I am sitting on my spiritual hilltop (laughs) with six months sober judging this. And, you know, much later when I did the work on that particular resentment, I really what I really saw was that what I wanted was the vodka that was in his pocket. It had nothing to do with anybody else's activities or actions. It was I wanted a drink. And that night, you know, I got into this rage with him, just a rage. It was just like the top of the cap had come off the, the bottle. And I couldn't calmed down and I went directly from that meeting to the crack house and see that was not my MO what I would always do is that I would drink and after I had a few drinks and loosened up a little bit then I would start getting on the phone looking for the dope man and this particular night I could not find relief and comfort anywhere at all and I went directly to the crack house and for the next four months I was uh, drinking and smoking and smoking Newport cigarettes and that'll kill you. Oh my God! And I, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't stop. It was round the clock, and mm. I every night I prayed that God would just take me. And every morning I would wake up, and the first word out of my mouth was the F word because 
I was going to have to get up and I was going to have to start all over again. And it is hard work to stay, you know, to stay high all day, every day. You know, I was praying for God to send an angel to help me or just something or, you know, let me die or help, help Some type me. of relief. I couldn't get sober. I couldn't get drunk. I was in that in-between place and it was just horrible. And on January 28th was, a, I think it was a Sunday, 2006, I woke up. There was nothing in the house. There was no chance of getting anything. I got up. I took a shower. I cleaned house. The next day I had planned to go out and get, you know, more so that I could get high again. And that morning, January 29th, the U.S. Marshals showed up. And I, I guess the part that I had left out here is that when I left North Carolina, I, had, I left here on federal probation. And they had transferred my probation to the low country. And they had been chasing me around for drug tests for that year. And I failed uh, nine drug tests. Now, the reason that's important is that when the U.S. Marshals showed up, I had been my probation had been violated and they took me out of there on cha in chains and I was in the car and we had to go to Charleston, South Carolina because that was the closest uh, federal holding pen. And I knew that God had sent angels to help me and they were dressed as U.S. Marshals carrying chains. But I knew, I clearly, clearly saw that this was God's hand in this. It's time. Here's your chance to get sober. And from that moment, I did everything that I could in that direction to get sober. Wow. And one of the things I really like about your story, Hank, is uh, when you talk about having the big book in prison. Well, I couldn't get a book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I came to in jail, I don't know if I'd been there for three days or a week. I just don't remember. But at some point, I had, uh, they had put me into a Deodis program, which was operated by Charleston County. It was an outpatient treatment, or I guess it was inpatient because it was in the jail. But it was <laughs> yeah, considered yeah you, you weren't leaving. Outpatient. Yeah, they, <laughs> Pretty they weren't much letting inpatient. me come and go from the jail. But that one would be a mandatory one, though, Les. <laughs> so, and it was mandatory. It was actually something that the federal government was paying for for me to do. And this is another miracle of the program is that I have one last chance. And I recognized it as my chance to get sober. So I, I had the, my meeting with my counselor, our first meeting, and there was a book there called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I picked this book up and of course I'd seen it. I'd seen it in, um, and I think I had even owned uh, a couple. How could you have missed it? <laughs> well, I didn't recognize that it was relevant. And when you pick it up, and it has words in there that I, I have never heard in my life. I mean, it's just written in a language that is not modern and current. I had so to have I, help going through I it. I couldn't mm -hmm. read it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. I guess I, I ultimately just didn't understand that this had anything to do with me. Though I'd like to take a moment to point out for newcomers who are listening to this story that the book is the textbook of how to stay sober. It is the basic text. And, you know, when I saw this book, I recognized it and I, I was drawn to it. Mm -hmm. So I picked it up and I was flipping through and I, my counselor was kind of across the room and I asked her if I could have a copy of this book. And she said, no, you can't take this book back to your cell. 
And I later asked her why, and she said it could be used as a weapon. And, you know, the whole time that I I was in jail, I never saw that book used as a weapon until I got to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but that's another whole story. So. <laughs> was that an errant sponsee, maybe? That's a terrible tease. We got to invite him back. So I was, of course, I wanted this book, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I was flipping through the book while I'm waiting on my turn to see the counselor, and, and there was a chapter in there called How It Works. And I thought, well, this is what I need to know. I need to know how this thing works. So I Good opened plan. the chapter, and it said, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And I wanted to know what the path was. And I wanted to know how to get on it and how to stay on it. And I read further and I, and I thought, okay, this is what I need. So I asked her, all right, I can't have the book because it has a hard cover and I can use it for a weapon. Could I have a photocopy of chapter five? And she did get me a photocopy of chapter five. And that's what I took back to my cell. So over a period of the next probably 45 days, I started reading this chapter every single day. And in hindsight, I see that that was the beginning of my meditation practice. I started reading, I started contemplating, I started thinking about, I started learning about what this chapter is telling me. It had a prayer in there, the third step prayer. And I thought it was the most beautiful prayer that I had ever read. And I didn't see any need to change the prayer. It had everything in there that I wanted to express. So that was my first experience with prayer. So prayer and meditation for me was the first thing that happened out of chapter five, how it works, prayer and meditation, which became a huge part of my recovery later on. But as we go through this thing, I start to see some patterns here. I start to see that these are instructions. It's telling us what they did. Well, this must be what I need to do. And you, I you didn't have a sponsor. I or had a no guide. sponsor. I had no meetings. I had nobody to help me understand this this text. I had me, and I had God, and I had desperation, and I had willingness. And I got as far as the resentments. I could figure that out, but I could not figure out the chart. How is all of this information supposed to go in this chart? The chart being the fourth step. The chart being the fourth step. The resentments mm -hmm. inventory. And then that chart had three columns. It's complicated. So I, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's hard to figure out. I couldn't that. figure it out. I was on my own. Mm -hmm. So what I did is that I wrote out, I reading through this thing, you know, for you know, 10 days or so, I recognized that there were several components that I had to look for. I had to look for the person's name, the resentment, what it affected, and all, and I, and thank God I, I saw this. The fourth part was not represented in the book as a column, but as a note on the next page. What is my, we look at this thing from an entirely different angle. What is my part in this? Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that changed my life. Yeah. Literally. People describe their spiritual awakening, their moment, that moment that the obsession leaves them. And it happens in different places. For some people, it's step one. For some, it's three. You know, some, it's five. Mine was for 35 days, and I remember this because I had 35 names on that resentment list. And I, they tell us to write it down, you know, write all the names and write all the resentments. 
I wrote it in paragraph form. I, and I, if it, with each component was a paragraph. The person's name, that might have been one line, but everything, your part in it, that was pages and pages. <laughs> yeah. I, right. Your part in it, I that's, perfected. That's the easy part. <laughs> and, but then when I had to find my part, a lot of things I couldn't find my part. And what I did is that I went backwards. Okay, what happened here? And what happened right before that? And what happened right before that? And I kept going backwards until I could see what I had done to cause you to react in such a way that I now have a resentment. And I did this 35 times. And what happened is that at some point after my resentment's inventory, I realized that I had not thought of a drug or a drink, and I could not remember since when. Cool. And that was the first miracle. Well, the second miracle after the angel showed up to rescue me. How long were you incarcerated? Five months. It was a potential two-year sentence, and that was the third miracle. I want to point out one more thing too, though, and and that is, you know, yes, the language, the age in which the big book was written, poses some difficulty in working through it now. But one of the things that comes into play here too is while that poses some additional difficulty, just because we're so many years removed from the age when that was written, right? Still. That book was a rich, that it was created so that people who had no one to take them through this solution could find the solution. Right. It was meant to be done on your own. I was thinking of that, yeah. in your case, Hank, to have done it on your own, because the way I did it was with a sponsor, and it's, it's much easier to uh, discover my part in anything when I'm talking to my sponsor just with a question and answer back and forth and a neutral party, the neutral party being my sponsor, can direct me to discover what that part is. And give another perspective. Yeah, give another perspective on it. Well, that is exactly what happened. And after this period of about 45 days that I was working on my own with the photocopy of Chapter 5, the uh, chaplain was able to get a paperback book for me. So I had the entire book for the first time after I finished my resentments inventory. And I devoured this book. I read it cover to cover, backwards and forwards, the stories in the back. When I read it in context, when I put all of the chapters in the order that they were published, I could start to see the bigger picture for the first time. And the language I now recognize it as just brilliant. It is so beautifully written. It is so specifically written. Every word was agonized over, and I recognize the importance of what I had seen as archaic language. At the time, it wasn't speaking to me because it wasn't time for it to speak to me, and when it spoke to me, I was receptive to the lessons that I was going to learn. Mm -hmm. So when I got to, you know, I, Another thing that I hear sometimes is you have to focus on the first 164 pages. That's where the message is. That's, but, you know, the stories in the back of the book, exactly as Sam was um, saying a moment ago, it was designed so that this could be mailed out to distant lands and they would have a meeting, i.e. the stories in the back of the book. It would have a place where we could 
relate to uh, the writer of those stories. It serves the function of a speaker it, meeting. It does yeah. serve as that function, and I have come to embrace the entire book as uh, the thing that changed my life. You know, the, I was the holdout. It was the thing that I never did or wanted to do or understood that I needed to do, and it was the very thing that changed everything. So you got out. So what did you do differently to stay sober once you got out the, of prison this time? When I got out, I was I immediately called my sponsor, and he worked with me for, and again I I, I think it was about a year and a half. And what we and we didn't do steps, okay. And I have to put this out because it's an important component of the story. But I had had this spiritual experience. I don't know um, that it was a spiritual awakening. What I do know is that over the period of time, I had a lot of spiritual experiences. And I think they all added up to the spiritual awakening. But when I first got out, I was working with my sponsor, and he was all about service. Now, you remember my first sponsor I told you was all about unconditional love. And this fellow was about service. And I did so much service. We we have a breakfast club on Sunday mornings. I cooked breakfast for two years. I was the literature chairman. I drove people to rehab. And so there was a, a fellow there who has since died who was, uh, he drove people to rehabs and he would ask me if I would ride with him. And he was kind of old and kind of blind and kind of scared me when he was driving. <laughs> but he would be talking to these newcomers going to treatment, and he would be telling, carrying the message and telling them about the three-part illness. And, you know, and I'm, my only experience has been service going to meetings and a start at an inventory that I did on my own without a sponsor. So that's my whole experience in AA at this point. And one day he called me and said, kid, I got one for you. And I said, okay, well, what time are you picking me up? And he said, nope, you got to do this one on your own. I can't go today. And I was terrified. And I, I was I was just, I, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I don't know how to say all those words you say. And I, don't, <laughs> I don't remember what the three parts of the illness are. And, and one excuse after another, and he said, kid. You can drive the car, can't you? And that really is as simple as I had to have my life at that time. Yes, I can drive the car. I can get from point A to point B. And that became my service work. Now, what happened at about two years sober, my sponsor started making some noise about me finding a different sponsor. And what I heard is, you don't want me anymore. And... I would, you know, cry and scream and kick my feet, and he would leave it alone for a while. And then he would bring it up again. And I would say, why do you want me to get a different sponsor? I, what, am I doing something wrong? And I was just, I was really upset. And what I was upset about is that I had never had a healthy relationship with a grown man before. And I, I treasured this relationship with my sponsor, and I didn't want to change. So what was his reason? What he told me, he said, son, he only had a year sober when we started working together and he had not finished doing the steps himself. He later told me, he said, son, you're outgrowing me very quickly. And he said, one day you're going to hit a wall and I'm not going to know how to help you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that did happen. 
And when I hit that wall, I mean, I remember it. I just remember it so clearly. And I called him and I said, it's time. And not long after that, one of these fellows uh, showed up that I was going to drive to rehab and he wanted me to call his sponsor. And so we called his sponsor and they came over to my house and we were, you know, getting him, trying to talk him into going to treatment. You know, we spent about four hours doing this and then the sponsor went with us when we drove him up there. And as a side note, this guy ended up hitchhiking home and beat us back to Hilton Head. We had spent so much time, four hours with him. But what happened in that four hours is that I had a conversation with that fellow sponsor that I had never had before. And I asked him if he would be my sponsor. And he took me through the steps for the first time as written, right out of the book, pen on paper, black on white. He even put me, when I finished with, is it step four or five that says, we took the book off the shelf and we reviewed our, <laughs> he even put me yeah. in the office and closed the door and said, I'll be back in an hour. I mean, it was exactly as written. Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful that I had that experience with him <clears throat> to take me through the steps at the moment that I was hurting and I had the experience of the relief I experienced from doing the 12 steps. Now, this is not how I would take someone. I mean, I take people through the steps exactly like that. Now, I don't recommend people waiting two years. I don't. I mean, I want to see this happening right away. But at the same time, I think that it happened for me exactly as it had to happen because I stayed sober. Yeah, and that's when you were willing. Yeah. I mean, it's like feeling the onion. You have to be ready. I think that if I had started the steps right out of jail, I would not have gotten it. But when I came to another place of, when I hit that wall, that place of restless, irritable, and discontented, and misery and depression, and, you know, the agnostic promises <laughs> mm -hmm. were all coming true for me, and I... I recognize my sponsor was wise enough to know, son, you're going to hit a wall and I'm not going to know how to help you. And when that happened, I recognized it and I knew it was time and I changed sponsors. And the absolutely the person who was supposed to be there showed up on my back porch. Yeah. Another miracle. Just showed up. I'd never talked to him before that day. Yeah. I love how that works. I love how that, that happens. Yeah. It does. Some other power. <laughs> Maybe a higher power. <laughs> a power greater than myself for sure. Absolutely. Things fall into place when you're when you're on the path. Well, Hank, thanks for sharing that with us and thanks for being here with us at the Boyle Dow. But don't go anywhere because we have a question for the old timer. That owl is just like swooping over every time. <laughs> Snatch my head, bald head. It's time for our old timer's question. Who you calling an old timer? I'm calling you an old timer. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Well... No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time, sunny boy. Stop it! <laughs> Not sunny.
If you want to ask a question, go to boiledowlaa.org. So, Don, yeah, we have a question, and it was submitted through boiledowlaa.org. The very first question actually submitted to the website. Exactly. So Christy writes to us, Dear old timer, I got sober exactly a week ago today, and this past week was tough having to actually feel my feelings without numbing them with booze. I am also a binge eater and slipped back into that habit a bit this week. I am prioritizing staying sober over fighting the binge eating, but my question is, how do I manage multiple addiction issues at the same time? I don't want to trade one destructive coping mechanism for another. Well, that's a good question. I remember the first time I heard, when you get sober, you'll feel better. You'll feel better. <laughs> feel everything. Feel everything better. better. Which was the case, and it was, it was all those feelings was what I was drinking at, trying to escape. So I had to learn how to deal with those feelings in some other way. I remember uh, my sponsor one time telling a newcomer who came up and said, I'm, yeah, well, I quit drinking and I'm, I'm changing my diet and I quit smoking. And he said, how good do you want to get? <laughs> <laughs> said, Why don't you just take it one thing at a time, take care of one problem at a time and focus on that. And the truth of the matter is by focusing on the worst thing, the drinking, over a period of time, that some of the other pressures, ease, and other things become easier to deal with. It's really hard to quit multiple addictions at the same time. But if we are not saints, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you don't have to do. It. Go ahead and smoke. It's there for you to quit later, but focus on it. I remember uh, I was worked up about the idea of God, and I had a lot of thoughts. And I had done a lot of research, and I had done a lot of writing, and I had done an enormous amount of reading over many years about what God was and how the universe worked. And I had, I had a conception of the way the universe worked, and I showed it to my sponsor, and he said, this is great. This is great stuff. Why don't you take this and put it on a shelf for three months, and then... Focus on the program of AA and put everything you can into it. Learn everything you can about it and understand it. And then we'll pull this back off the shelf in three months and take a look at it. I was going, that's a reasonable idea. That's the best <laughs> advice I ever got because it allowed me to focus. And I don't have to do it forever. I just, I'm going to do it for three months and I'm going to pay attention to AA and do what it asked me to do. So basically, I canceled my reservations, <laughs> all my reservations, <laughs> and I focused on AA. And then I was able to make a better decision after that about other things. And over the period of time, I, and I had quit smoking before I came to AA, but I did change other, lots of other aspects of my life. And I don't think I could do it all at the same time. It's okay. Take it one at a time. Yeah. What do you think, Hank? Well, you know, that I can't that question was just incredible. It's exactly where I am at the moment. And you know, the the most urgent thing for me 
at the beginning was drugs and alcohol. It was absolutely urgent. It was life-threatening. And that had to be addressed exactly as you know, it happened. You know, I heard someone say that at least two years sober before I should quit smoking, and that may be a good rule of thumb. I don't know, but I actually quit smoking unexpectedly with Sam in New Mexico. And we had we had gone out to Albuquerque to do a workshop. We had gone to, uh, what's the name of that mountain we were on? Sandia Peak. Sandia. So they have this uh, tramway, and then uh, at the tramway, we were kind of hiking up a little further up the mountain. And I started getting sick, and I didn't feel good, and I just... Apparently, I had altitude sickness, and I, you know, I have no experience with altitude. I've lived at the coast for most of my life. I got sick, and I couldn't smoke, and I recognized this as the window of opportunity. I think a very important thing is that the first time I got sober, all I had was the faith and your experience that this was going to work. When I quit smoking at seven years sober, I got to experience the withdrawal as a newcomer and the knowledge and experience that on the other side of this, I am going to be able to kick this addiction. And so here we are now, you know, at 12 years sober, I am now working on the food issue. And this is turning out to be really, really hard. Uh, I actually have an OA sponsor now, and I have a, a network I've put together of like-minded people so it's something that I'm working on currently. And, you know, I think the answer to the question is, you know, the urgency at the beginning was the drugs and alcohol. And then when the cigarettes became the urgency, I addressed the cigarettes. And now the food has become urgent and I am addressing the food. And I think it's happened exactly as it is supposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I heard in the rooms that... Um, we quit things in the order in which they'll kill us. Mm. And for me, alcohol and drugs were definitely yes. urgent. They were yeah. they were killing me. I mean, I, I to the point where I attempted suicide. So that had to go. Yeah. Then the next thing for me was cigarettes. Now, I put down my cigarettes when I picked up my 90-day chip. And one of the things that I had said for so long was that, you know, cigarettes went hand in hand with alcohol for me. And so when I stopped drinking and I really was stopped, done, I was done drinking, the obsession was removed, I didn't have any reason to continue smoking except for that social crutch nature of it, where if I was standing around with a bunch of smokers smoking, then I at least had that in common with them. And, you know, I belonged there. Well, what I found was I belonged in AA. And I had this alcoholism in common with all y'all. I didn't need the cigarettes for the social crutch. Right. And so I put down the cigarettes that day. And I did make a statement to my home group at the very end of the meeting that just for some accountability, I'm no longer smoking. Mm -hmm. I haven't had a cigarette since. That was back in 2003. The next thing that came for me was health, was fitness. I had always loathed exercise, absolutely hated it. But I was six years into sobriety and was in a place in my life where I was ready to get fit. 
I was experiencing, I was traveling the world and I, I didn't want to pull, uh, you know, running through the airport carrying 40 extra pounds and I wanted to lose the weight. Mm -hmm. And so I started taking that action and I found that the way opened up for me. I found this physical fitness boot camp that was exactly what I was looking for. And I found the, the desire and it kicked in. The last thing that I have been dealing with, that I've dealt with, was financial. You know, I had a credit card. I, I had an American Express with a crazy limit when I was 20 years old. And I ran it up and ran it up and ran it up and ran it up into the tens of thousands of dollars. There was no way I could pay it off. I went through, in sobriety, something that there's no way I could have done without my sobriety. And that was going through personal bankruptcy to, to deal with my debts and to pay off my debts. The thing that I found, ooh, we get a nice little tied up with a bow here. All right. All right. So we mentioned earlier that, that the big book is a textbook. I did a workshop with, uh, or a workbook with friends a while ago. One of the things that was at the very beginning of the workbook was this explanation that this book is a text. And by definition of being a text, it's not something that you just open up to any place in the book and start reading. You need to start at the beginning because one thing builds off of the next. How? I mean, previous. How to. Exactly. Know. So you need to, you need to work step one in order to even begin to understand step two, that type of thing. Well, that's been my experience in quitting, in moving through the stages of being rid of, or at least bettered, of these various other forms of my disease showing up. That is, I had to get sober. I learned how to work the program, and I use it in my life. And then the things that I have experienced, the growth that I have experienced by working this program, whether or not I applied the steps to the next thing, I had the experience of the sobriety and, and the time of living this program that helped me be ready for the next thing. And that led all the way up to that bankruptcy period. I'm, my God, I mean, that was a scary time. I mean, it's something that you don't want to go through. You couldn't have done it all at once. I mean, you couldn't have, you couldn't have handled it. And, and absolutely not. There is no way I could have handled it. And the thing, too, is that if I were to have gone through that bankruptcy stuff as a drunk, it would not have gone well at all. It was okay to wait to yes. the proper time. And like uh, Hank was saying, angels appear at different times and it becomes clear what is the right thing to do. Christy, thanks for the question. Absolutely. Hang, hang in there. It gets better and have confidence that all the people around you in AA have had these experiences and gone through these things. And there's incredible hope here because... One thing that I know for sure is that AA works for me to stay sober. As crazy as some of the things that I've been asked to do were, and as crazy as they seemed to me, I did them anyway. And it pays off. It works. It does work, and it does pay off. And I heard someone wish me one time a slow recovery. <laughs> and, you know, when this next issue is, you know, resolved in whatever way it will be, Something else will be, you know, ahead of me. It's this is a, a, a lifetime 
opportunity for me. And when I've gotten okay with that idea is when, you know, when I can recognize when the miracles happen. So I don't have to worry about having all of this done by Monday or losing all of this weight by, you know, March 1st. I'm going to be working on this a day at a time, just like I did everything else. That's right. Hank, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you this was. Christy, thanks for writing. Indeed. Thank you, Christy. Sam, I'm glad you were here. And I've got one piece of advice for you. What's that, Don? Protect your head. <laughs> Where's the broom? Give me that broom. Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Who has the time? Don't these people in recovery know how important you are? You need Sponsor Schmonser's Speed Recovery System. At the Sponsor Schmonser Company, we know how valuable your time is. Order our new product, Speed Recovery. 90 meetings in 90 minutes. That's right. 90 meetings in only 90 minutes. You receive our cassette tape of 90 speaker meetings. That's 90 old timers all talking at once. 90 hours of wisdom compacted into only 90 minutes. Unbelievable. Listen to this sample. Incredible! The recovery just pours into your brain. 90 topics on every subject, all at the same time. Don't have 90 minutes? Just increase the playback speed to increase the recovery. Don't miss the miracle just because of your busy schedule. Order Sponsor Schmonser's Speed Recovery System today. 90 meetings in 90 minutes, only 90 bucks. Sponsor Schmonser and all its products are not approved by Alcoholics Anonymous, and since they are not real, they probably will not work.